We're reading this morning from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 1 through 17, and it's on page 988 of your Bibles. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Okay, so it's Palm Sunday, we were told. And um, at this time of the year, we all know we have Easter bunnies, chocolates, and eggs. You go to the shops and they are littered everywhere. Now, last year, December, if I had told you that, oh, come Easter next year, there would be no chocolates, eggs, or bunnies in England, you'd have said, oh, come on, I don't believe it. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But if I told you, oh, there will be abundance of Easter eggs, chocolates, and eggs, come on, it's common sense. We all know. It happens all the time. You know, there is no doubt about that. If things happen repeatedly or frequently, we expect it to happen. The likelihood of it happening again is very high. But if things don't happen very frequently, we all know that, well, it might not, the likelihood of happening is very, very low. When it comes to what we call prophecies, prophecies are words people have said to predict or to say things that would happen in the future. Okay, so someone may say, well, you know what, in 10 years' time, this was going to happen, and to prophesy, to say something that's going to happen. That's what prophecies are. And um, I have a quiz for us um, today. Well, that's the Easter eggs. Um, first is, oh, why did the answer come? The answer shouldn't be there. I don't know. Okay, maybe it doesn't work as 
Yeah, maybe it doesn't work well. But the question is, <laughs> I checked all my slides and make sure they, but yeah, technology has a mind of its own sometimes. But the question is, if you had a prophecy made about a child when they are young, and it's just one prophecy, what is the likelihood that that prophecy would happen? Let's say, for example, oh, this child is going to be a lecturer in, I don't know, 40 years. What's the likelihood that it's going to happen? I'm not a mathematical genius, so I would say maybe all things being equal, Cateris Paribus, is 50-50. It may happen or it may not. We don't know the background of the child, we don't know the history, but it may happen or it may not. I'm sure after this service, someone will come and tell me, a, a, a mathematician will come and tell me, no, you're wrong there. But that's fine. But, you know, all things being equal, I think it's 50-50. Okay, so that's the first one. I think it's 50-50. Now, I've done the easy bit. I think I'm going to ask people to do the tough bit. What is the probability that a, a prophecy made about a child, eight prophecies, would come to pass? Anyone? Give it a, a guess. If eight prophecies are made about the child, let's say we predict where they are going to live, who they are going to marry, the job they are going to do, and so on and so forth in 20 years, what is the probability? Again, I'm not a mathematical genius, but I'm going to borrow a mathematical, a mathematical genius's mind. But I want to, people to guess. Okay. I don't know, but according to Peter Stoner, a mathematician, because life is so complex and we just cannot know or tell... It is one, oh, again, my slides are messed up. That should be 10 raised to the past 17. I don't know why it's showing that way, but anyway, let's say the characters didn't show properly. But it is one in 10 raised to the past 17. That's, you know, because you just, so he used various um, uh, metrics and parameters and said, look, it is very unlikely that it would happen. Now, another one. What is the likelihood that 48 prophecies, 48 prophecies would happen? That's nearly impossible. Again, I know that the thing has messed my slides up. Oh, but that, but that actually shows right. That actually comes well. So maybe, I, 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 I don't know. Anyway, but it is 1 to the power of 157, which is like, at this point, it's only a God who can make it happen. It, it, it can't happen, you know. All the 48 prophecies coming to pass. My last question is, how many prophecies did Jesus fulfill? That silence was very loud. <laughs> it's estimated to be between 200 and 300, and usually people say it's 300, so over 300, that's what people say. That is impossible. It cannot happen. It just cannot happen. It only takes a God. It only takes a God. In this passage we have, just these 17 verses, we have over five prophecies being fulfilled. In verse 5, verse 9, verse 11, verse 13, and verse 16. Five prophecies being fulfilled in just 17 verses. So I have titled this sort of talk, Prophecies Fulfilled, because I, I think it's all about prophecies being fulfilled. Jesus living something that has been predicted hundreds and hundreds of years before he was even born. Prophecies fulfilled. And we're going to tackle that in three main headings. The coming king the cleansing king, and the people's response. The coming king, the cleansing king, and the people's response. So let's start first of all with the coming king. 
Today is Palm, Palm Sunday, as we've said, and it's the time where we used to, you know, we use this time to celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And the picture we see in verse 1 is quite a buzzing picture. I mean, the first few chapters, verses, very, very buzzing picture. A lot of people going to the same place to do the same things. We have traders, we have tradesmen, we have tourists, we have traditionalists, all heading towards Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish tradition, to go and celebrate the Passover to go and sacrifice and do whatever else they wanted to do there. But it's, 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 it's such a really busy time. And we also told in verse 2 that Jesus and his disciples are actually about two miles out. So they're also traveling there, and they are just near the edge of the city. Let's look at verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 2 and verse 3 says that, I'll read from here. Well, I'll start from this one. And as they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her, with her, with her caught by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, Jesus, who lives to fulfill prophecies, is also prophesying. And I don't know what arrangements he has done or he's made, but he tells his disciples, go out to the, end, to the edge of the city. At the, at the gate, you're going to see a donkey with a colt by them. Lose them and bring them to me. And he didn't just say that. He actually gave them the password. He said, look, if anybody tells you, hey, what are you doing here? Tell them, oh, the master has need of them. And they will let you have it. I don't know what arrangement Jesus had done, but actually... He knew what he was doing. It seems like there was some divine pre-arrangement. And what I find fascinating about this was, look at these disciples. I mean, Jesus tells you, go, you'll find this donkey, tie it and bring it to me. And they are like, yes, sir. And then they also go and, I won't do that. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'll start asking questions. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, what's the color of the gate? How, how high or, or what's the weight of the donkey? I want specifics. I want to know some, something concrete. When I get there, I don't have to doubt. I know what it is, you know, and, and, and then go for it. But no, the disciples have learned to just obey. And I'm sure that, you know, they would have learned from various experiences where Jesus says something that's absurd or impossible, but then it happens, like Peter fishing, and he's toiled all night, and Jesus says, let down your net again. And experienced fisherman, carpenter, carpenter telling experienced fisherman to do his job and, you know, he just does it. So that sort of thing, he, they, they've learned to just trust and obey and just do what he says. So anyway, they go and they go and get this um, cold and they come back and they set Jesus on it. Now we go to um, verse 4. So in verse 4 as well, we see that it continues to say that this took place to fulfill what was Spoken through the prophets, say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the fault of a donkey. Say to the daughter of Zion. Now, that phrase, the daughter of Zion, was just to say God's people. It was, it was a term they used for God's people. So say to God's people, your king is coming. Wait a minute, your king? Again, it's trying here... Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy, and the prophecy is in Zechariah 9.9. So it's trying to say that this king coming, whatever is happening now, is actually saying God's son, Jesus, 
is coming to his people, and he's a king. So it has already been prophesied that he is a king. He's coming gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt. The colt is basically a young, a young donkey. So Jesus is coming with this donkey, Zechariah 9.9, which has been prophesied. Jesus did not borrow the donkey just to take a prophetic box or because it's been prophesied, I have to do it. No, but there are significant features about this. Now, the donkey was gentle and lowly and was royal. So Jesus was actually, it had been preordained and he was living it. He was living God's word. He was just living to fulfill what had been ordained about him. And when the donkey was brought, the guys just put their clothes on the donkey and sat him on it. And so he starts riding two miles into Jerusalem. Now what happens is that we see that a large crowd, a very huge number of people, at this time of the year, many people will be going to Jerusalem. The road will be busy. And there was no need for them to give Jesus this special attention. You know, there was absolutely, yeah. He had at that point done nothing on the road for them to give him that attention. But people come and they start getting branches, palm branches. That's why it's Palm Sunday putting it on the road, and giving him a welcome that was unprecedented. No one has really had that. So Jesus comes in with, with, with this great crowd, and at this point, I just want us to pause and analyze. What surprises me is not the great crowd, because it's common. At this time of the year, you expect it. There should be a huge number of people heading down. But what surprises me is the welcome Jesus receives. The welcome, daughter of Zion, your king is coming. And then when we go to verse 9 and verse 10, we realize that they also say that he is the son of David, the Messiah. Now, the, the Jews were waiting for a Messiah. They've been waiting for years. It's been prophesied. So many things have been said. And using that phrase, the son of David, to them would have meant so much because it's not just anybody, it is the Messiah. It is the Savior, the anointed one who comes to save us, who comes to deliver us. The Jews were under siege, them, the Romans were ruling, and they truly, physically needed a Savior. So calling Jesus by that and giving him that welcome was quite, was really, really strange. They used that kingly term for him. And the question I have in my mind was, was Jesus the coming Messiah to them? Did he really come to sort of um, save them then? What, 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 was he the one they were waiting for? Well, what, anyone, know, anyone remember the inscription on Jesus' tomb when he was, sorry, on his cross when he was crucified? Jesus Nazarenos, Rex Eudorium. Jesus the Nazarene. King of the Jews. He was asked during his trial as well, are you king of the Jews? And he said, yes. So actually, it looks like these guys who had cut all these palm branches and who were shouting all these praise to him, they were praising, they were actually prophesying. They were, they were saying things that were going to happen. They, were doing, they may not have known it. Most of them probably didn't know that that was Jesus' last entry into Jerusalem. Most of them didn't know that Jesus was going to die a few days later. They, they just started proclaiming and praising and, you know, with this joyful sound, just raising him up and lifting him high. 
and proclaiming exactly what he was and who he was. Why? Because he had been prophesied. God has said it was going to happen. And it actually did happen um, just like that later on, as we know. Now, coming to Jerusalem like that was suicidal. Absolutely suicidal. Because the Jewish leaders will be looking out, well, if you say you are the Messiah, of course, they expected the Messiah to be a savior, right? So someone who is powerful, who has authority. But Jesus wasn't a Messiah material to them. No, Jesus was just a Nazarene from Nazareth, a place of no reputation. Jesus was a carpenter. He wasn't like a scholarly person. He wasn't posh. He wasn't as religious. He wasn't as pious. And to be honest, he wasn't anyone they should contend with. And Jesus had already done some miracles and things which were against what they, the religious leaders, against the institution. So already he was wanted. And now to come and say he was the Messiah, he was the king, they would definitely want to get rid of him at the earliest opportunity. Another reason why it was suicidal was because Rome, uh, well, Jerusalem was ruled by the Romans. The Romans were in control. And verse 10 tells us he st- the city was stirred up if you were Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Rome, or if you were the Roman officials. You will not be happy if the city is stirred up. That is commotion. You, you want quiet. So again, you want to see what's happening, and that could easily spell his death as well. So that's another reason why I thought, Jesus, really? Your whole ministry, you have said, well, if I do a miracle, don't talk about it. You've been hiding but this time you're happy to go um, uh, uh, to Jerusalem in this way, a way which could actually lead to your death. And of course, we all know what happened in the end, which we'll come to. So the elephant in the room for me is, was Jesus truly a king? Was he truly the Messiah? I would say, yes, of course he was. Yes, he was. Of course he was. He did not come as was expected. He did not come on chariots and horses with a lot of soldiers. He did not come with, you know, a presidential treatment. He came on a borrowed donkey. The donkey wasn't even his. He came humbly, meek. He owned everything. He owned everything. Everything belongs to him. But he chose to borrow a donkey to come to Jerusalem. And, of course, it's his but he still asked for it. And I think he is the king of the Messiah because he did something greater. He did two things which were greater than conquering Jerusalem. One, he overcame Satan, and two, he overcame sin. Dear friends, there is evil in this world, and Satan, we are told, roars or prowls like a lion seeking one to devour. The evil we see in our world, the injustice, the sickness, the pain, the, the, most things have causes. And we know that Satan sometimes causes some of these things. Satan comes to steal from us, to take away from us. We see that in Adam and Eve. We see that in Job. The devil just comes to destroy. Anytime he appears, there must be commotion. There must be destruction. He comes just to take away. He wants to take away. He wants to steal our joy, our families, our, 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 our relationships. But this king, when he comes, he comes to overcome Satan. He said, 
that he destroys the works of the enemy. That's what Jesus comes to do. So, and did he really do it? Yes, he did. When he went to the grave, he, that we are told that he made a public spectacle of the evil one. He overcame and he rose victoriously. In the end, he overcame death itself. He overcame. He overcame. Anytime Jesus comes, he comes with peace. He comes with love. He comes with, frankly, life. He comes so we will have life and have it in abundance. Jesus comes so we will have life. That's why he came. That's the work of the coming king, to overcome Satan, to overcome his work, to overcome the power of darkness so we can have life. That is the coming king. The second thing he comes to do is to save us from our sins. So the king comes to save us from our sins. And how does he do that? He cleanses us through his cleansing. So the second point is the cleansing king. Now, Oh, I think I'm on point now, which is good. The cleansing king. The seventh president of Ghana was the late Jerry John Rollins. He was such an inspirational character, very, very charismatic, very powerful. I think I have a picture of him here, so actually. So he's the one on the right. And when I was young, I, one day this man got out of his fine clothes, got out of his presidential palace, and exchanged everything for dirty wellies and shovels and went to um, the gutters in Accra, the capital of Ghana, and started cleaning them up. Now, what was really striking was, um, fine, Accra was dirty and all that. He could have called people, but he chose to actually get his hands dirty to set an example for others to follow. And uh, till now, that's what most people, you know, even though he's late, most people remember him for, um, the president who goes about um, doing all this sort of dirty work. When we look at verses 14 to verse, sorry, verse 12 to verse 14, we are told that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Where would you expect a king to go? To the palace. He's a coming king. There is a reigning government. So, of course, go and overthrow the government and, re- and you know, install yourself as a king. But no, he goes to the temple the temple, the shrine. He goes to the temple and he wants to claim the temple, but then he starts, first of all, by cleaning it up. By cleaning it up. We've said again, at this time of the year, a lot of people will come from many parts of the world. They've come to worship some. They've come to sacrifice some. They've come to celebrate the Passover some. They've come to share time with fellowship and so on and so forth. And the temple is a central place where people go to um, worship and to sacrifice. Now, the temple had different courts, the inner court, the outer court, and various other courts. But this court, we are told, is actually the common court where anybody could come. And because some have come to actually sacrifice, they needed animals. And some have come from very long distances. So you don't expect them to come with doves over very long distances. The doves will perish. So best thing is, carry some money, get to Jerusalem, get the animals for sacrifice, and then you go and sacrifice. Makes sense. Where would you get the animals? Of course, get it closer to the temple because you, know, you, you usually have your sacrifices around the temple. That makes sense. Many people, again, are coming to the city, so they will come with various currencies. They would need local currencies. So, of course, we need people to um, trade forex so that others can have money to buy things and do the sort of things they want to do. 
that is not bad in itself, but the manner and the place in which it was done was what was bad. The merchants took opportunity of all these privileges, and the temple became secularized. A place that's supposed to be for communion became a place for worship, for commerce, I mean. A place that's, that people are supposed to bow their knees to the Lord became a place for business and money. A place that's supposed to be for worship became very worldly. And that's what angered Jesus. It can't be. It shouldn't be. And so Jesus quoted Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. This house, my house, shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. If it's just a den of people, that's okay, but a den of robbers, a place of worship, a consecrated place has become a desecrated place where people are just making money. So he gets very, very angry, and he's not happy about that at all. And he cleanses the temple, and this is also... um, the temple, actually, which he claims, we are told that for us, it's not just a place or a building, but for us, it is our bodies. Our bodies are the temple. So when we are thinking about temple and Jesus cleansing today, it shouldn't just be Jesus going to Jerusalem to go and actually cleanse the temple, but it is us. We don't own ourselves. Our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to him, and he is the one who cleanses it. How does he do it? We know that a few days later... Jesus mounts the cross, he dies on the cross, he's buried, and he rose again. Why? Because he had to shed his blood. Blood was needed for the forgiveness of sin, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is dangerous. Sin is the corruption of the soul. Dear friends, no amount of detergent can cleanse the soul from the bitterness and the envy and the anger and the jealousy and the pornography and the backbiting and all the silly things we do sometimes and, you know, the mean things we do sometimes and the lawless things we do sometimes. No amount of detergent can do that. But blood is required, we are told in Hebrews 9.22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Jesus had to, had to, mount that cross and shed his blood. And that blood he shed a few days later was what cleanses us people from that lawlessness we call sin. That blood is so potent, it can make the foulest clean. That blood is so potent, it can cleanse us no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done. The secret things we hide, that blood is potent to take it away if only we are willing to let him do it. He's the one who comes to cleanse. No one else can cleanse us, cleanse our souls of that. He does, and he's the king who comes to do that. When we talk about cleansing, another thing I really pray God will cleanse is the commercialization of Easter in the modern Britain or in the modern world. A lot of people travel to this great country which... Um, for so many years has been known as Christian countries. And what they see is all they know. And so they think Christianity is about, oh, yeah, Easter is about Easter eggs and, you know, uh, bunnies and chocolates. But that is commercialization of worship. That needs to change. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's one of my big prayers, that as people, as we come to him to cleanse us, our culture will also be cleansed because we are shaped by our culture. 
So he's the king who comes to cleanse. And that's the second point. And then we head finally to the third point. He is the king who, um, sorry, the, the, the people responded. That's the third point. So the people respond. Now, let's look at uh, a quick story first. In 2021, one of our local heroes, Marcus Rashford, was knighted, given an MBE for his service to community, and he, wrote, he raised so much money, over 20 million for charity, and um, he became the uh, Sunday Times, uh, he was on the Sunday Times giving list, one of the youngest people on the Sunday Times giving list for raising that amount. And he was celebrated, and he should be celebrated. That, that's a great achievement, fighting for the vulnerable. Th- that is awesome. Jesus was also celebrated. He was celebrated by many people. You know, we see here the children shouting and screaming, oh, he's, he's, done, he's done this great thing, you know, son of David who comes to save us. And people are very, very happy. In fact, we are told that the religious leaders saw that what he did was wonderful. And it was a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. He's healed so many people. He's done so many good things to people. He's lived a life which is truly refreshing to many. And he should be celebrated as such. And um, yes, he was, but we are told that some didn't celebrate him. Some rather wanted him dead. Um, Some wanted him not celebrated, really, because he was taking the shine, he was taking the glow of them. And these were the religious leaders. Isn't it interesting that on the road, the ordinary people, the common people, the kids were praising him? And as Andrew said, if even people didn't praise him, he could raise rocks to do so. But then he comes to the temple, rather, and he's rejected, and he's challenged. And I want us to look at two main things there. They ask him a question. Religious leaders asked him a question, and um, I want us to have a look at that question briefly. So let's go to verse 15. It says... But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. That question is loaded. That question is not just a simple question. It means, look, dude, they are calling you Messiah. They are calling you King of Kings. We know you are not. You are just from Nazareth. You are a nobody. Won't you tell them to shut up? Because you are not. Tell them to keep quiet. Tell them to keep quiet. But Jesus' response to them was also a question. And that question is also loaded. Let's carry on. So Jesus says to them, Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Jesus is also saying, you guys say you are scholarly, you are educated, you are the highest in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the city. Can you not see what these little ones are seeing? Can you not see that they are speaking the truth? Can you not see that I am who they say I am? And even if they don't, even if they don't, as we are told in other parts of the gospel, he's able to cause rocks to actually praise him. He can even cause rocks to praise him. So we see these two different responses to one big event. Jesus comes triumphantly. He comes into Jerusalem. He comes and cleanses. 
and people respond differently. One is saying, mm -mm, this man, we don't trust him. The other is saying, wow, what wonderful works this man has done. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And they start praising him. The question we have to be asking ourselves is, which of these two people are we? I mean, in today's age or time, we have the privilege to see all these prophecies fulfilled. Now, why did God use, or, or why did God speak these things before fulfilling them? One, because he's faithful. He says things and he does them to show us that he's faithful. When he says he will do something, he will. And two, to help us believe. We like evidence. He's said it. He's done it. We can believe it. To help us believe that truly he is. Do we believe? And finally, there is another big prophecy which would happen. Jesus prophesied his second coming. He said, this is not the end. Yes, I've come as a, um, um, I've come as a savior, the Messiah, the anointed one to save. But I'll come again to rule and judge. How prepared are we? Do we believe it? Now, he's given us so much evidence to believe, and it will happen. So as we go through this time of Easter, these are the things I wanted to really ponder over and think about. The coming king came, and when he comes, when he appears, there is peace because he's the prince of peace. When he comes, he destroys the works of Satan. When he comes, he takes away sin by cleansing. He cleanses us through the power of his blood. And the thing is, how do we respond to that? What is our response to that? He's given us so much to believe that he is who he says he is. He's done what he, say he, he says or he said he will do. And he will do what he has said he, he will do in, in the future. Where do we fall in that? How do we respond to that? Your, that temple you have, how are you using it for him? How are you using that temple for him? Is he Lord and King? We are most, sometimes people are happy to make Jesus Savior, but then when it comes to King, you can be Savior, but you're not King. You can't rule over me. No, I want to do what I want to do. I, I want to be King of my life. But no, it should be Savior, Messiah, and it should be King. And we either allow him or not. And he stands at the door today and knocks and asks us where we, what we want to do with that. So I want us to, um, in a few minutes, just bow down our heads and um, just pray. Just, just pray right now regarding what we've heard. I don't know what you have heard, but the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is uh, a wonderful and uh, a great experience telling us of this great king, this Messiah who came to lay down his life so we can be cleansed, so we can be made whole, so we can be pure. Sin is dangerous. Sin tarnishes. It's the cancer of the soul. It, it destroys more than anything else. But he comes to cleanse. So that temple of yours, do you want it cleansing? Do you want him to come and cleanse that temple? I want you to pray now and, um, yeah, just, just talk to him. I don't know what you've heard today. I don't know what has ministered to you, but I want you to pray about this, about this temple and, um, yeah, uh, welcoming him in and ask him to cleanse. Father, we, 
We want to pray right now, thanking you because you are the coming king. You were the coming king. You came and we saw your work. You overcame Satan. You overcame sin. You overcame death on the cross. You rose again and Jesus intercedes on our behalf even now. And so we want to thank you for that. And that wonderful entry into Jerusalem led to the great salvation on the cross that we can be forgiven, our sins can be forgiven. You are the one who cleanses us. And so, Father, I want to ask, Lord, that if anyone at this point is thinking about how dirty their souls are, how messy their souls are, and are yearning, calling on you for cleansing, will that power of your blood, Lord, cleanse them? Would you, would you, would you help them call on to you and you cleanse them, make them pure and whole? And Father, for us, we want to have the right attitude to Easter this season. We want to not just believe you, but Lord, we want to live a life that pleases you. So open our eyes to see. Open our eyes to see that you are the one and true Savior. You are the king who comes to give life. You're the one who came to give your life, that we can have life. In Jesus' name, amen.